question for you to consider for a moment. The question is, are you a spiritual person? If you stop to think how we would answer that, most of us would probably say, well, who doesn't want to be thought of as a spiritual person? If we answer no to the question, doesn't it seem like we have something missing, maybe? Who's going to say, no, I'm just a physical person, just flesh and bones, that's me, not spiritual at all. Increasingly today, people seem to sense that there is more to us than just flesh and bones. Even non-Christian writers are acknowledging that hardcore atheism is losing ground in our society somewhat. Richard Dawkins might be the most famous living atheist, and he describes human beings as computers made of meat. <coughs> what do you think about that description of you? It's not a very appealing way to think of ourselves, is it? <coughs> computers made of meat? They were nothing more than processing machines? And so, atheism is losing ground somewhat, because it doesn't speak to our sense as human beings that we are more than randomly programmed computers made of meat. We have a sense there is meaning and purpose to our existence. And so more and more of us would say, yes, I am a spiritual person. Most of you will have colleagues or family members who would describe themselves that way, as spiritual. But if you try to go on then and dig a little and find out what they mean by that, we will probably get a wide, wide range of different answers. Many people have trouble explaining what they mean when they say they're spiritual. It may be just a vague openness to more than just the physical, coming from an awareness that there is more than just the physical. Some people will talk about trying to find positive energy and tap into it. Or you might have heard someone talk about manifesting their future. It's quite popular today. The idea is that if you want something in your life, you can make it happen by believing in it strongly enough. You can attract the things you desire into your life. When someone tells you they are a spiritual person, it could mean just about anything. <coughs> so it seems today more and more people would consider themselves spiritual explorers, we can say that. There seems to be an increasing And you're struggling 
try and sort through all of this. You're struggling to pin down what it really means to be a spiritual person. Well, this morning we're going to turn to a part of the Bible that can help us sort through this. <coughs> I think. The book of Colossians in the New Testament has great relevance for our thinking about spirituality. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to Christians in the city of Colossae. And these Christians needed help sorting true spirituality from dead-end spirituality. They were becoming confused by spiritual ideas they were coming into contact with. In this letter that he writes, Paul speaks about a philosophy that is threatening to take them captive. It seems to have been a mashup of Greek ideas and Jewish ideas that were kind of stewed up together. It was a kind of build your own spirituality, like the spirituality of many people today. And as the letter goes on, Paul will give some details about that spirituality in Colossae. But what he wants the Colossians to see is that to build your own spirituality is actually to have a hollow and deceptive spirituality. Paul writes this letter to help them understand and enjoy true spirituality. And what Paul says here is equally helpful to us today as we try to sort out true and helpful spirituality from hollow and deceptive spirituality. So let's look at the start of this. If you haven't found Colossians yet, it's in page 1183 in the Green Church Bibles and 1828 in the Large Infant Bibles. Colossians 1, and we're just going to read verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. <coughs> and obviously, it is an introduction to this letter. Today, letter writing seems to have just about disappeared. But I can remember being taught at school about the proper 
proper way to write a letter, there was a standard form for how you did it. Mainly to do with the beginning and the end. Whatever you plan to say in the main part of your letter, there was a set way to start it and end it. And the ancient world was no different. There was a standard form for letter writing, particularly how you began the letter. So did Paul follow that standard form? Well, to an extent, yes he did. The New Testament contains 13 of Paul's letters, and if you compare the introductions to the letters, you will see clear similarities. But, you'll also notice differences. That's because when Paul wrote a letter, he already had in mind the main issues he wanted to deal with. And the, the main points he wanted to make. And so already in his introduction, Paul would be preparing the way for what he wanted to say later in the letter. That's what accounts for the variations in the introductions. And what that means is, when you and I read the introduction to this letter, we know this is not just a throwaway. It's not just a formality that has no real purpose. And we can safely assume Paul is already beginning to prepare the ground for what comes later in the letter. Here in the introduction, before Paul even mentions the confused spirituality that is tempting the Colossians, before he gets to that, Paul is already setting out the better alternative. He's already pointing to true and satisfying spirituality. He's pointing to the foundations of the true spirituality. In these first eight verses, he gives us the context, the motivation, and the result of true spirituality. First, in verses 1 to 4, the context of true spirituality. If you look at these opening four verses, and you ask, what is it that stands out in these verses? I think two things are being emphasized. One of those things is community. Paul is not writing to a bunch of individuals. He's writing to a people. In verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae. And the people who make up this people are close to one another. So much so that Paul can refer to them as brothers and sisters. They are family. And in verse 4 he says, one of the things he's heard about them is their love for one another. This is a close community. What else is being emphasized in these first four verses? It's the fact that they are a community united in Christ Jesus. Again in verse 2, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. And in verse 4, the other thing Paul has heard about them as a community is their faith in Christ Jesus. So right at the start, in this letter about true spirituality, Paul gives the context of true spirituality. It is a loving community united by faith in Jesus. And of course, that has to be explained. Paul has lots to say about why true spirituality can only take place in a loving community. 
He has lots to say about why it can only be a loving community united around Christ, rather than nationality or sport or politics or whatever. But already, right at the start, Paul is drawing a line in the sand for us. He's setting true spirituality apart from any other spiritualities. Other spiritualities tend to be focused on me. Me in my own little spiritual zone. Worrying about how I'm feeling and how it's working for me. And there might be other people around me who are into the same thing. But really it's about me and what suits me and works for me. Those kind of spiritualities are like silent discos. I don't know if you've heard of a silent disco. I'm not going to ask you if you have been to a silent disco. But the way a silent disco works is people show up at a hall or maybe a tent like they would for a normal disco. But instead of the music being pumped out of speakers, everyone listens with their own personal set of wireless headphones. So if you are in the room without a set of headphones, you will not hear anything. You'll just see people pogoing around to the music in their heads. When silent discos first started, there was just one channel where everyone was hearing the same music. But very quickly, there became multiple channels available. So you can pick your own favorite mix of tunes according to your own personal taste. Some events just have people listening to their own personal music players. So what that means is, a silent disco might look like a communal event, but there is no actual unity. Not even at the most superficial level of everyone listening to the same music together. Each person is having their own bespoke experience. An experience made to their own specifications. And I mention silent discos because I think they're a very good illustration of what spirituality consists of for many, many people. They may know a lot of other spiritual explorers, but any togetherness is just an illusion. There's nothing really uniting them. They're all dancing to different tunes. But here in Colossians, Paul says, true spirituality is so much richer than that. It takes place in the context of a loving community united by faith in Jesus. Now that makes more demands of us than a spirituality made to our own specific. Of course it does. But it is also incomparably greater and more fulfilling than a personalized spirituality that's just all about me. And what works for me. This morning we welcome new members into this church community. And what each of these new members is saying really is, I want it to be about more than just me. 
tune. The tune that says Jesus Christ is Lord. As this letter goes on, Paul will explain why exactly our faith must be in Christ Jesus rather than any other figure or any other power. The short answer at this point is Jesus Christ is far above every other figure or power. But here at the beginning, Paul doesn't pause to speak about that. Instead, he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to get another foundation for what he's going to say in the rest of the letter. He gives us the motivation of true spirituality. That motivation is a clear and secure hope for the future. In verse 4, Paul has mentioned the Colossians' faith and love. Now in verse 5, he describes those as the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already had the true message of the gospel that is coming to you. We know that hope is future-oriented. Hope looks forward. And New Testament hope is hope that looks forward to what God has stored up for us in heaven. In another place, that is described as an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And if we ask what exactly that inheritance consists of, the New Testament tells us quite a lot. It includes salvation, not only from the guilt of our sin, but the effects of it too. The brokenness and the weakness that flood all of our lives because of sin. Our future inheritance also includes righteousness. Not only being declared righteous, but becoming like Jesus our Savior. Pure and spotless like Him. Right now, today, God counts us righteous when we trust in Jesus. In the future, we will be righteous as Jesus is. Our future inheritance also includes being physically resurrected in a renewed, imperishable body. Enjoying eternal life with God in that eternal body. Experiencing and sharing in the glory of God. That is the hope stored up for us in heaven. It's not a vague, cloudy hope like so much spirituality tends to be. New Testament hope is clear. And it's also secure. Because it doesn't become ours as a result of our own effort or our own achievement. It becomes ours because of Jesus' achievement. Jesus won all the things we just mentioned through his death and resurrection. Those things become ours through faith in Him. And those things are stored in the one place, the only place where time and hostile powers cannot touch them or spoil them. Our hope is secure 
because our hope is stored in the presence of Almighty God. Heaven is his home. It is beyond the reach of any enemy that might try to steal or destroy our inheritance. In contrast to that, so much spirituality is based on finding therapy for ourselves here and now. It focuses on what might work for me here and now and give me peace here and now. But New Testament spirituality calls us to a much deeper and wider hope than just here and now. This is an eternal hope. And here's the thing that might be surprising to us. That eternal hope we have in Christ makes all the difference to our lives here and now. That's the point Paul is making in verse 5. Our faith today and our love today spring from the hope stored up for us in heaven. That hope stored in heaven produces faith and love in us today. You may have heard the statement that some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. The idea behind that is some people are so focused on their eternal future they're good for nothing in the present. Their heads are in the clouds. Now, I don't know if there are people actually like that. But here, Paul is saying, genuine heavenly mindedness is not like that at all. Genuine heavenly mindedness makes us of the greatest earthly use. does not cause us to zone out in the present. No, it frees us from the desperate need to get what we can here and now. It gives us the freedom to trust Jesus and love others here and now. In contrast to that, when our hope is all about the present, we face an unrelenting pressure to grab what we can right away. We're concerned with what will give me an easier life today and more comfort today. But that tends to squeeze out any space in our lives for sacrificial love to others. And if life seems to be getting more difficult, that tends to squeeze out faith in Jesus. Because he doesn't seem to be delivering for me right here, right now. But in contrast to that, when our hope rests on what is stored up for us in heaven, then we can live with difficulties today. Not that we enjoy them, of course not. But we can live with difficulties today. Because we know Jesus is not letting us down. We know that his promises are a long-term thing. We don't expect them all to be fulfilled for us here and now today. And that long-term hope in Jesus opens up space in our hearts 
for sacrificial love to others. If you really want to be of no earthly use, then live your life with the goal of having it all today. That is guaranteed to make you so selfish and so impatient you will be of no earthly use. What Paul says next follows naturally from what we've just been saying. He points to the result of true spirituality. Paul says that what has been going on among the Colossians is just a small part of something that is worldwide. Look at the middle of verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you. Since the day you heard it, you truly understood God's grace. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. We see the context for true spirituality is faith in that good news. And here Paul describes what that good news does. It produces life, it spreads. It bears fruit and it grows. It reaches other people in other places. It fills them with hope for the future and love for one another. At this point in history, the good news about Jesus has been reaching other people and other places through Paul, through his fellow servants, his fellow workers, people like Epaphras, who's mentioned in verse 7. Paul himself has never actually been to Colossae, but Epaphras has. And because New Testament spirituality is not like a silent disco where everyone dances to their own tune, because true spirituality has the same tune in every time and every place, the tune of Jesus and what he has done, because it's a consistent tune, it's the same tune for the whole world. And so Paul can write to the Colossians knowing Epaphras has taught them the same good news Paul shares wherever he goes. The same good news that still bears fruit wherever it goes in this world. Silent disco spirituality cannot do that. It cannot spread because it's all about me and what I personally like and what works for me personally. And you and I might respond to that by saying, well, okay, that is true, but so what, really? If I find something that works for me, what does it matter whether it spreads or grows or not? Well, here's why it matters. In the very first chapter of the Bible, in the kind of creation, human beings were given a commission. They were given a purpose. Here it is from Genesis chapter 1. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth 
and subdue it. The word subdue there has the sense of cultivate. <coughs> to begin with, the first men and women were given a garden to live in. It was a, a limited space. But God's commission to them right here was to spread the beauty and the fruitfulness of that garden over the whole of God's earth. That was humanity's purpose. And notice, being given that purpose from God was a blessing. It was not a burden going to them. Fulfilling their God-given purpose was the way to thrive and flourish. Now, if we read on in the early chapters of the Bible, we very quickly learn how things fell apart. Instead of enjoying their role as stewards of God's world, the first man and woman wanted to make it their world. And their sin and rebellion resulted not in a cultivated, fruitful earth. No, it resulted in a frustrated earth that resisted cultivation. What does that have to do with verse 6 of Colossians chapter 1? Well, there's very good reason to think that Paul here is intentionally calling to mind the early chapters of the Bible. The language that Paul uses in verse 6 is a conscious reference to the original purpose of humanity, given back in Genesis 1. That original purpose was not fulfilled, but it was not forgotten either. Not by God. In fact, that original purpose is referred to again and again throughout the Old Testament. It's like a bell that keeps on chiming in the Old Testament. To keep that commission in our minds. The original commission of humanity is not an obscure theme in the Bible. It's not a thin strand of the Bible's message. It's significant. And when the theme appears in the New Testament, there is a development. We learn in the New Testament that through Jesus Christ, God is bringing about a new creation. And that new creation spreads over God's earth. Not as human beings produce children and cultivate the ground, though those are still very good and very important things. But since the arrival of Jesus Christ, human beings fulfill our commission by being fruitful and filling the earth with the good news about Jesus. We thrive and we flourish as that God-given purpose flourishes and spreads. As we see the gospel bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Today, we cultivate God's world by telling the truth about Jesus and by living lives that reflect something of Jesus. Something of his character, something of his goodness. And here's the great significance of all of this. This means 
But only New Testament spirituality can truly fulfill us and truly satisfy us. Because it's what we were made for. Literally, it's what we were made for. Silent disco spirituality simply cannot come close to this kind of fulfillment. So much of what counts as spiritual today is just me listening to me and hoping to get some comfort from that. Hoping it will make me feel a little bit better. In contrast to that, the result of true spirituality is a fruitfulness that fulfills our deepest purpose. Spirituality that's all about me ultimately leaves me hollow and empty. Because I've not truly become part of something that's bigger and greater than me. That people who go to a silent disco and go away again solitary, disconnected experience they made for themselves. <coughs> On the other hand, New Testament spirituality does incorporate us into something bigger and greater than ourselves. It brings us into the greatest thing of all, the thing we were created for, filling the earth with the glory of God. As more and more people come to worship and glorify his son, Jesus. And isn't that what brings us here together every week? We don't come here for the equivalent of a silent disco, where we all get our individual tastes catered to and our individual <coughs> egos stroked. No, we come here together to be reminded again. We are part of something greater than our own tastes and our own egos. We are part of the greatest mission on earth. And we can truly give ourselves to that mission because we have a clear and secure hope for the future. We can live with difficulty, we can live with disappointment here and now. Compared to what we 
sing together. But first, before we do that, we're going to take a moment just to be quiet and to consider personally what this passage has said in front of us. Let's take a moment to ask ourselves, would I really swap this for anything else? Let's just take a moment to ask ourselves that question in God's presence, and then we'll sing. 